welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. I wanted to start and just center ourselves in silence. We just invited God's presence and worship. And we want to um, center our hearts and our minds on like what God would want to say to each of us. There's something that he has for you um, here this morning. I know it. Otherwise, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here. That we would just get real quiet and invite God's presence and see what he would want to say to us. Um, so come, Holy Spirit. Come speak to your people. You say, Jesus, that your sheep, you know them by name, and they hear your voice. And when we get quiet, when we just breathe and spend a moment in silence with you, you eliminate distractions from our heart, and you focus our attention on you. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. God, we are grateful that in your presence, all the facades fade away. We don't have to be anyone. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to act a certain way. We don't have to try and be better than we are. We don't have to cover up. We don't have to hide. We can be free. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and set people free this morning. God, I don't have to entertain people and I don't have to be boring. I just have to be me before you. I pray that you would affirm each and every person here dearly loved, cherished, adored by the God, the creator of the universe. We don't have to get more likes for you to like us, God. We don't have to share more stuff. We don't have to put a filter on a photo. God, you see it all and you love us just the same. And we are grateful and we receive your love for us. Amen. Okay, a quick note before we get started. For some of you who were not here last week, I just wanted to drop just a quick uh, teaching nugget with us and explain the dynamic of the learning environment. Now, um, for me, I don't know how it is for you. It might be the same. It might not be. But I just find that, like, I need... uh, Standing before you, I need your prayers for me throughout. We feel this is a significant series um, and a significant uh, line of messages for our community. And so I'm jealous for your prayers. I don't know about you, but I find that when I go into learning environments, that if I go in with a hard heart and I'm like, man, there's, who does this guy think he is? There's nothing that he can tell me that I don't already know. I walk out of that environment thinking like, well, that was a crappy teaching. That dude doesn't know anything. I could do his job 
and I could do it way better, right? But if I go into that environment and I'm thinking like, gosh, there's got to be something that God wants to show me even through this guy. And if I go in thinking like, gosh, there's got to be something that God wants to do in my heart to shift the way that I'm living, I walk out of that place and I'm like, gosh, I think I, I, think I gleaned a thing or two. And you know, that guy ain't too, ain't too shabby. He might have a thing or two to say. So leveling with you, I want to tell you right up front, I am by no means Bible answer man. I'm not an expert at this stuff. I just want to share a few things that I feel like Jesus has shared with me this week and have a conversation about the Holy Spirit together. That's what this is. It's not a lecture. It's not a guilt-ridden thing. It's like a conversation between us both and finding out what brings us life and what, um, what satisfies our souls. So can we have a conversation about the Holy Spirit together? That'd be good. Okay, cool. We're calling this series The Wild Goose. And the reason we're calling it The Wild Goose, just to recap, is that there are people in like the Middle Ages, the Celts, who as the gospel is sweeping across Ireland and Scotland through St. Patrick and others, that these people found the symbol of the dove as the Holy Spirit just a bit too tame for their liking. And so they said, you know, that's not the Holy Spirit that we know. The Holy Spirit that we know cannot be tamed, cannot be domesticated. And the Holy Spirit that we know is more like a wild goose. It's like honk is abrasive and like disruptive to our lives. And it will chase you down if you get too close to its eggs. And actually, the um, word-for-word translation in the Gaelic language for the Holy Spirit is the wild goose. It's like word-for-word. And so I think, to, to bring it down a little bit, Jeff, you are so tall. This is like, I want to see people. Okay, to bring it down, like, what does this mean for our church? I feel like there's something of God that we could just say, you know, I don't have this God thing figured out. I don't have this Holy Spirit thing figured out, and I can't subdue or control God. Like, actually, I don't know anything about him. I need to know about him. So there's something like uncontrollable about this dynamic as the Holy Spirit, as the wild goose. And so last week we talked um, intensively about the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. Like the force from Star Wars. Like he's an actual person. And we'll get into more of that in a little bit. And so a roadmap for us, if you're curious, is that like this first kind of set of uh, teachings is related to who the Holy Spirit is. And then we'll move into like, what does the Holy Spirit do? So it'll be all kinds of great teachings about like tongues, uh, freedom and deliverance from demonic oppression, signs and wonders, all kinds of fun stuff like that. But first, the foundation is like who the Holy Spirit is. If he's a person and not an it, well, what is he like? Who is he? And so what, that's what we're going to talk about today. 
There's a couple of books that I've been referencing, and I'll continue to reference through the course of the talks. And one is by a theologian named Gordon Fee, and the book is called Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. And the other is a book about having more of the Holy Spirit by Simon Ponsonby. And so I've been referencing these books, and Gordon Fee, in his book, says this is who the Holy Spirit is, just really simply. If you don't have time to read the book, it's a brilliantly written book, but if you had to sum it up and three words. It would be God's empowering present. Presence. God's empowering presence. So the Holy Spirit is one, God's, two, empowering, and three, presence. God's empowering presence. And I wanted to draw out a couple of scriptures for us to kind of look at that and see what that means. And the first one is in Luke. If you had a Bible and wanted to turn or flip there with me or on your phone, And it's the story of the birth of Jesus, kind of a Christmas story. I don't know, maybe I'm in a festive mood today. Christmas a little bit early. And we're going to start in verse um, 30. And we read this in Luke's gospel. But the angel said to her, to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered in verse 35, the Holy Spirit, here it is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So, today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as power. And here we see in the gospel right off the bat that there is this synonymous relationship between the Holy Spirit and power. In nearly every count in the New Testament and Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's this synonymous relationship between his power and his person. They're inseparable. So whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, there's always like stuff that transforms. There's stuff that happens. Jesus does all kinds of miracles. We'll get into that in a second. For another example, turn over just a couple pages to Luke 4. And in Luke 4, 14 through 21, Jesus has just gotten back from the wilderness where he was tempted by the enemy. And we read in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is, here it is again, on me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began uh, 
by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I just picture like this um, Middle East synagogue, uh, first century mic drop in that situation. Jesus is like, bam. And this hush settles over the crowd. What's happening here is this, is that there is a way that Jesus does all the stuff that he does. There's a way that he does it. And that way is found right there in verse 14 as he's returning from the wilderness. The way that Jesus does all of this stuff, feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, healing sick people, what other kinds of stuff did Jesus do? What other kinds? Feeding Feeding people. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. The way that he does that stuff is in the power of, of the Holy Spirit. So you see there's this synonymous relationship between who the Holy Spirit is and his power. Now, this deserves a little bit of explanation. I I agree with you. I can hear you. This deserves a little bit of explanation. So, we'll have a little history lesson if that's okay with you. I happen to be a history major from Ohio State, the Ohio State University, so I quite like history. So, There's a time in human history called the Enlightenment. Who's familiar with the Enlightenment? And it's during this time of the Enlightenment where men men and women figure out stuff. This thirst for knowledge. And as we're figuring out stuff, before the Enlightenment, the vast majority of people were uh, saying things and believing things like, or such as, Hey, the sun rose this morning. Thank you, God, or gods, or it, or whoever. Thank you. And by the sun, the crops grew, and we have provision. Thank you, God, gods, whoever you want to call it. And we eat, and we're cared for, and then the sun sets, and the seasons turn and move, and it's all a result of the gods, or God, Yahweh, action in human activity. Now, the Enlightenment comes, and it's the first time that we see the delineation between two words that are familiar to you, the natural world, yes, things that are of nature, and the supernatural. Before the 18th century and the Enlightenment, these two words did not exist, especially, well, especially the word supernatural or supranatural, above nature. Things like healing of the sick, feeding 5,000 people. Sound familiar? Okay. So after these things are delineated in the 18th century through the Enlightenment, followers of Jesus begin to take the miracles of Jesus and well-meaning, and we'll get into the problems with this in a minute, and although they're well-meaning, there's a problem in how the miracles of Jesus have been handled in the Western church for the last 300 years. Followers of Jesus begin to take these things that Jesus did as he walked the earth and see this and, and go to people who doubted now, now that there is a delineation and now that we know that it wasn't per se in secular society, it wasn't God who made the sun rise. The sun spins, the earth spins, there's gravity, except I'm no scientist. Forgive me. Okay. And that... Um, 
If that's true and that's the case, well then Jesus cannot be the Son of God. Jesus cannot be God. He's setting up here in Isaiah, when he reads the scroll, he's setting up the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah. He's saying he is the Messiah. Who knows what Messiah means? What does Messiah mean? Always in the first three rows. Well done. So, yes, the chosen one of God. This is the one who God smile, who God, who's God, God is choosing to save people. This is who God's spirit anointing um, old-timey language for like pouring oil over the head. God is on this person to save the world. He's the chosen one. Jesus is the chosen one. He's saying this as he reads the scroll and then the mic drop. And so now that this has taken place in the after the Enlightenment, people are saying, well, now that we know all this stuff about the way that the world works, it's causing me doubt that God really exists, one, and, and specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. And so followers of Jesus freak out, which we're really good at doing, and we're like, no, 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 wait, 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 you don't understand. Look what Jesus did. He fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He actually walked on water. That proves that Jesus is who he said he was. And while this is true, it's been very harmful to the cause of Christ throughout the world post-enlightenment. And here's why. Because miracles and what we're told in the stories of Jesus are not a way to prove that, God, that Jesus is God. Miracles are a way to show us what a life fully immersed in the Holy Spirit looks like. It's a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. That this is what it looks like when a man or a woman chooses Jesus as Messiah and walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, how does he do it? He does it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, Jesus isn't God pretending to be a human being. You guys know that, right? Jesus is not God pretending to be human. Jesus is God, and Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. So that's how he does it, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at it this way. We'll get a little bit tricky here. God is omnipotent, right? God, if God is God, he knows he's all-powerful, omnipotent. He has all power. Was Jesus omnipotent? No, he wasn't. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. And what could be more human? Jesus died. Jesus was not omnipotent. Jesus of Nazareth was not omnipotent, tired, hungry, and death. A bloody birth, just like you and I, came into the world the same way. Okay, so we've settled that. Is God, so God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. This is a little bit more controversial now, journey with me. God is omniscient. He knows every single thing. He knows every single person and the contents of every single human heart. Was Jesus omniscient? No. <laughs> A plus, dude. Um, 
the answer is no. Jesus was not. Now, Jesus has insight into people's hearts. He's full of the Holy Spirit as he's walking the earth. But do you ever notice in the gospel accounts that Jesus asks questions? If anybody approaches you as a follower of Jesus and heaps guilt on you because you have questions, say, I don't receive that. Because Jesus had questions. And Jesus had questions because he didn't know stuff. Think about it. One of the very last things that happens with Jesus is that Jesus is asked when the end will come. And Jesus isn't lying to people when he says, I don't know. Only the Father knows. I don't even know. He's not like lying to people like, just kidding, I really do know, but I'm not going to tell you. Right? Because in other places, Jesus says that he shares everything that the Father gives him. He shares with people. And so Jesus isn't lying or playing hide-and-go-seek or doing mental gymnastics with people. He's simply saying, hey, I don't even know. So in his humanity, Jesus of Nazareth is not omniscient. What is happening here is this. That God, in the person of Jesus, is laying down the God card. It's like God has this, like, all-access pass or whatever to anywhere in the universe. And in the coming of Jesus, says, no, I'm going to lay that down and become like people. That's what it's like. That's what it's like. And this puts into perspective why the temptations even in the wilderness are even temptations at all. Think about, because this is, this is Jesus' whole life. The whole life was like a constant barrage of people or the enemy trying to get Jesus to prove that he's God. And he wouldn't do it. That flips power on its head. Oh, so beautiful. So think about this. Okay, so the first temptation in the wilderness was what? Who knows this one? What was the first temptation that Jesus faced? Man, A plus again. (laughs) Blue stars too. So Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread to feed himself. Now, how many of you have been walking through the woods and you're like, dang, I'm super hungry right now. Like there's some pebbles, bread, and you ate it. And, and it was yummy. And then later on, you're just racked with guilt because of what you did in the woods. You're like, oh crap, I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. I turned those stones into bread and then I ate them. And I just, I just feel terrible over it. God, could you ever forgive me? I turned stones into bread. No, you didn't. So what is the temptation? The temptation for Jesus is to prove that he's God. Even at the cross, through people mocking and spitting on Jesus, they say, if you are who you say you are, come down. You can command angels. Get down off the cross. And Jesus says, no, not going to do it. Not a victim. I'm willingly laying down my life 
and staying on the cross for the joy that's set before me, he says. Refuses to prove himself. That's the temptation. So where, if he's God, where does he get his power? The Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like when a human being, this is the way that we should read the miracle stories. This is what it looks like when a human being is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, moving on. Man. Okay, moving on. It means that Jesus is a prototype. For everyone who comes after him, Jesus is the prototype. In John 14, 12, we land smack dab in the middle of one of Jesus' teachings. And in John 14, 12, he says this. I tell you the truth, or verily, verily. Some of you have verily, verily. That means, hey, put your phones away and listen up. Whenever Jesus says verily in the old English, or like, I tell you the truth, he's like, put your phones away and listen to this, because I'm about to lay a truth bomb on you. Bam. He says this. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. More on that in a second. Okay, so... There's a lot of like scholarship over the, what Jesus means when he says, you, you and I, if, ah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, if, if we're to do as, if Jesus is the prototype and Jesus is saying that you will do even greater things than he did, what does Jesus mean by that? There's a ton of scholarship on this. It's like, what's greater than like raising the dead, than like re- resurrection? Like, I, I don't know, like, I I don't think he's talking about like one-upmanship because like what's better than that? He might be, I don't know. But I think, I think what he's talking about is quantitatively. Like Jesus, if Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth and he's just a man in that sense, right? There's only so many like demons that Jesus could cast out. There's only so many sick people that he could heal. There are only so many... Um, hungry people that he could feed. And when Jesus says, you will do even greater things than these, the leading scholarship is saying that like, it's quantitative. That like now Jesus followers, we're like everywhere. We're like in apartments, at workplaces, in school systems, all over the earth throughout the course of history. And so he says, you will do even greater things. One thing that's super clear here is that when Jesus says you will do greater things than he did, he doesn't mean lesser. How many agree with that? Can we just level with one another and say that when Jesus said you're going to do even greater things than these, what he, what he didn't mean was like, dude, if you follow me, you're really going to suck at life. Right? Greater is greater. And so Jesus being the prototype doesn't mean that you're going to do lesser things. It means that he's going to act in you in the power of the Holy Spirit to do even greater things. And so in Acts, we see this playing out in the formation of the early church, if Jesus is the prototype. 
In Acts 1, Luke is writing and he says, in my former book, what's, what's the former book? The Gospel of Luke. Yeah, good. A pluses again. Gosh, these are super good. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And then he tells them to sit, stay put in Jerusalem until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Interesting language. Luke says in his gospel and what he wrote previously, he wrote about all the stuff that Jesus began to do. And so now this, Acts, what's Acts about? Yes, Acts. Acts of things, yes, Christine, yes. Acts of things, stuff happening. It's about the continuing work of Jesus after he's left and sent the Holy Spirit. And so we see this pattern playing out. I want you to pay attention to the pattern here. Like in Acts 3, we read this story. That one day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Another sample. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Nevertheless, in verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, this is what happens when people, this is what happens when people come to Jesus. Watch. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. How many? All. All of them were healed. Now, I'm not saying that, like, Bill and Sandy, like, you know, like, people are just waiting for you to walk by so that, like, your shadow can cast on them and be... And, you know, people, I live in Brunswick, people are not lining up outside of Sarah and I's house, like all the sick people from University Hospital, and just like waiting for us to get home so that we can like pray for them to see them healed from their diseases. But the pattern is not just like theoretical. The pattern is like in the everyday stuff that Jesus followers do what Jesus did. Like, Jesus did stuff, and then the early church did the exact same stuff. Healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding hungry people, acts of social justice, 
like Jesus' followers in the early church did the exact same stuff. And the same goes for us today. That pattern is still good. That pattern is still true if you claim Jesus as Lord. Now, after the service, I'm not expecting any one of you to go to like the city morgue and like go raise the dead. I believe in that. And I want to see that happen. We just sang about it this morning. That's our heart. I mean, clearly, there's like, clearly there's something unfolding in Peter's life, yes? Like something unique. Like he's walking in something that's like unique to Peter. But though it's even unique to Peter, that doesn't make the pattern any less true for us today. That's why I said last week, this is what we're after to like close the gap between like what we read and hear and like the amazing stories that we hear around the world of folks being healed or the power of the Holy Spirit moving in his church and throughout the, throughout the world reading about those experiences, like shortening the gap between like what we read and like how we live. That's what we're after, that the pattern is still good. And what is the pattern? In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul writes, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe, for us, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that was on Jesus rests on you if you claim Jesus as Lord. That is the truth. This is where the spirit as a person is so important. What we talked about last week, like the spirit, the Holy Spirit is not like some force from Star Wars, some gray oblong blur power that's just kind of out there and like missionaries and pastors and special people are like Jedis, you know, like the the force is strong with this one, watch out. No, no. We read here, it's for all of us. It's for all of us who believe. So I wanted to show you this slide just through a little bit of research that I did. That um, there's there's an organization called Ligonier Ministries. And they surveyed thousands of evangelicals around America. And what they found was that well over half, the majority of American evangelicals do see like the Holy Spirit as this kind of vague force or it. Which means that a couple of things, if you were to interpret these figures, it means a couple of things. It means that one, we need teachers who will handle the word with integrity and teach what the Bible says. And it also means that we need to wake up as the people of God to like everything that he's given us or to the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the key thing to key, to key in on here, if, we're, if, if you're like, okay, you, got, you sold me. Okay, I'm good. Like, Holy Spirit, he's a person, not an it. Gotcha. The thing that we need to key in on is that it's not some, it's, it's a person's power. It's not just some vague power. The power is attached to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this analogy, I think you'll find helpful. So how many of you guys know Josh Warner? A few of you guys know, he's, he's a friend of mine. 
He goes to church here. Today he's celebrating um, his mother-in-law's 60th birthday, so he can't be with him, be with us. But I asked him if I could share this analogy because I think it's really helpful. And he said, sure, go ahead. I love when people talk about how strong I am. So, Julie, if you want to, there's, there's my friend Josh. Josh can deadlift 535 pounds. And there's a quote from Josh Warner. If the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending. <laughs> Clever. So, clearly, okay, so Josh, Josh is like super duper, super duper strong physically. I could work out six days a week, and I will never be as strong as Josh Warner is, ever. He's huge, guys. <laughs> so... If I need, like, something moved in my house, like, if, if Sarah's like, hey, babe, can we move the piano to, like, upstairs? Which she would never do. But if she were to do this, if she were, if you were to say, hey, Evan, can you move the piano upstairs? I don't sit in the entryway room and, like, hype myself up, calling and wielding the power of Josh Warner. Josh Warner! Josh Warner! <laughs> Eventually finding the strength of Josh Warner to move the piano upstairs. No! Josh and I are friends. So Josh and I go out and we have wings together. And like I, you know, we're texting every other day. And we're in small group together. And we pray for one another. We're in relationship together. So if I need the piano moved upstairs, I just call Josh. I don't like wield the power of Josh. I'm like, hey, Josh, can you help me move this piano upstairs? And he's like, yeah, buddy, I'll be there after work. You know, then he gets there and together we move the piano, which is really about 90% Josh and 10% me. <laughs> but we move the piano upstairs. In the same way, I know it's like cheesy, but in the same way, as we grow in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we grow in his power. At, see, his power is at work in and through us. There's a reciprocity, aside from all spiritual merit badges, like even the goodness you can do. I know, I get it. It's by grace we're saved. By the spirit, all, all, the, all the spiritual merit badges aside, like how we live is like um, symbiotic to the level of power that's in our lives. And so I've set up a little equation here, and I know that faith is not an equation. One plus one does not equal two in life. I get it. But from what I can gather, it's like intimacy plus holiness plus faith equals power. I'm getting this from Paul's letter to the Galatians where he says, Since we live, we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So first, intimacy. John Wimber says that when I speak of hearing God's voice, I'm speaking of developing a practice of communion with the Father. You should write that down. Because if there is a sweet definition of discipleship, that's it. I love it. Developing a practice of communion with the Father. Intimacy. This is what God is after. When we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about it in terms of relationship. This is about intimacy. Now, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he calls the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. 
The word holy has a checkered past, and I'm treading lightly here. So what does holy mean to define that for us? Holy means, hello, Lord? Um, Holy means uh, to be set apart from or to be set apart for. And a lot of times the church has focused on uh, holiness as like a spiritual merit badge or something to be attained, yes? And it's very unhealthy to people and their psyche. Um, But it does mean to be set aside from and set aside for. We forget about the set aside for part. More on that. The Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the Holy Spirit is because we're set apart for special purposes. Set apart from means that we're saying no to certain things. That you may... You might look the same on the outside as everyone else around you, but as you grow in relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, you're learning, you're growing into the person who says no to certain things. You're saying no to the way of violence. You're saying no to hatred. You're saying no to gossip. You're saying no to lust. You're saying no to these things, but you're also saying yes, as you grow in holiness, you're saying yes to being set apart for something. And that's really aggravating to someone like me. (laughs) I don't know about you. It's really aggravating because what it means is that there's going to need to be change in my life. Charles Finney was a revivalist during the Great Awakening in America. And it was said about this guy that Charles, Charles Finney like drew thousands of people into, into the kingdom of God. And it was said of this guy that when he walked in the room, people would just start weeping. People would just start breaking down and crying under the power of the Holy Spirit in Charles Finney. And so Charles Finney said that when he felt that power waning, he would set aside a day for prayer and fasting. It's like, wonder what that's like. You're like walking into a room and you're like, no one's crying in here. I got to take out my calendar and set aside for like, okay, pray tomorrow. Okay, good. You know, there is a reciprocity between the power of the Holy Spirit and the way that we live. It's not just like everything's okay. God, yeah, yeah, God loves you regardless. There's nothing you could do that God wouldn't still say, I love you and I choose you. But there is a symbiotic relationship between how you live and the power of the Holy Spirit that you possess. Because it's based in relationship, The question is, how bad do you want it? And that's a tough question to get after. Because I don't feel like I want that bad enough in my life. The third part of the equation is faith. You know, in 26 of 29 stories in the Bible of healing in the New Testament, 26 of them include this element of faith. It's a trust thing. You know, trusting that God is eager 
to display like his goodness in people. Like he wants that more than we want it. And so how do we grow in trust? How do we grow in trust? Grow in trust in Jesus by risking, by practicing risk. Hearing the voice of God, you say, I don't even know, I don't know about like raising the dead and all that stuff. I can't even stop watching porn, you might say. You know, maybe it's hard for you, like, you know, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend and I don't want to stop doing that. This is difficult. Let alone raise the dead. Let alone heal the sick or feed hungry people. I can't even get like my mess figured out. Well, the cool thing about trust is that it requires risk and it's got nothing to do with like you per se. Like, take prophecy for instance. Jesus had like... um, insight into people's hearts and there's pro- there's prophecy there's wisdom that he wants to deliver through you and so if you take a risk and you approach somebody and you say hey this might be from god i don't know you don't go up to them and say thus saith god <laughs> like this is what he says and you try it out and you risk and you'll be wrong sometimes but how will you know what God's heart is, and what's just like the pizza you had last night. I went through this phase where I'd like see a pregnant woman, and I'd be like, um, <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, well, God wants me to like pray for, pray for this mom and like bless her. And, and I thought I was so cool. You can ask Sarah. I thought I was so cool. And I go up to, so like one time, um, like you're going to fail. If you choose the risk, you're going to fail. You're wondering how this story turns out. (laughs) I know we're almost going on 12. I know it. I know it. I don't really care. Today, I don't care. I do value your time. Today, I just don't care. So um, I go up to this woman in Santa Barbara. We were in California. And I'm like, hey, we're on vacation. Like, why not risk? Like, these people, I don't have to bump into them every day. And so this woman, I come up to her. She's pregnant. And um, I'm like, you know, I just feel like you're going to have a boy. And he's just going to be amazing. And he's going to lead people to God. And he's just going to be a leader. And she looked at me and she's like, okay, She's, like, really gracious to me, but she's, like, um, we're actually having a girl, and it's been, like, a really traumatic pregnancy, and um, she, like, like, walks away. And I'm, like, you, speaking to myself, I'm, like, you jerk. Like, sometimes you're going to fail when you risk. It happens to me all the time. But how else will you know if you don't? Like, if you want to see the sick healed, like, pray for the sick. The only way you're going to see that is if you keep on praying for the sick. If you want to see the addicted get free from drugs, like, keep on meeting with the addicted until you see them get free. That's the only way you're going to know. 
Faith is spelled W-H-I-S-K. Whisk. Just kidding. Risk. Just whisk it, man. Mix that up. R-I-S-K. Yeah, I hate this because it requires something of me. It requires something of me. And it means that how we live matters. It means that you can change. And that's the reason I don't like it much. It means that transformation is possible. And we wonder, like, where the power of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. In some humility and some grace, I'm saying, like, there could be some thing happening on the left side of the equation. If you're wondering, like, where is the power of God in my life? Could it be because you're not choosing to cultivate an intimate relationship with God? Or if you're like, where, God, is the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? Could it be that that second part of the equation, that the holiness thing, like you're just like, whatever, you're like, I, I can look at porn and it won't affect the way that I relate with the Holy Spirit, or I can um, gossip about every single person and it won't affect my relationship with the Holy Spirit. Could it be that like, maybe there are some parts of the left side that aren't equaling like the right side. I'm not so good at math, but I feel like the left side should equal the right side. Is that right? Okay. And can you hear that in grace from me that like I'm, like I'm going after this thing too, that we're all in this together and that we're growing in the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek to like level off the left side of the equation with the right. What does this mean? So Sarah and I have been here like five years and we're in for like another five if you're in. Like we're all, I mean for, for however. There's this verse in First Thess- Thessalonians that I feel like the Lord shared with me this week. And Paul is speaking or writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Here it is. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Acacia. Um, you became a model. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we're just getting started. Like we're just getting started, you guys. And... What God would want to do here with us in like the next five or the next 10 or however long, like we may, like we may never be a mega church and we may never be like the best church, but I feel like what I'm after is like, I just want to follow Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit with like my friends and like journey this together and be like, be a healthy church. 
the way that Jesus functioned it to operate as a body. All of us doing our part. All of us showing up and doing our part the way that Jesus envisioned the church to function. We, we never... We may never like plant a thousand churches. We may never have like a, a banging sound system. We may never like send off like a thousand missionaries. But like, I feel like what God wants to grow is a family of people who operate in the power of the Holy Spirit and see the city transformed. Why don't you join me in standing?